You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. Coming to you from Richmond, Virginia, I am Ryan McGee and joining me from Southampton, England is Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, it's a little bit a uh, little bit different today. We have a we have a pretty awesome guest. Uh, I got to geek out with with today's guest. Yes, and this is surprising and I think actually a sign of how much curling's growing especially in the u.s uh since 2018 so uh, do you want to describe who our guest is today our guest is ken pomeroy and he's he's kind of a big deal if you follow college basketball like i do he is the proprietor of kenpom.com which is kind of my front page for data when it comes to ncaa basketball here in the states and he has started dabbling in curling ratings and looking at you know different ways that we can look at curling from a statistics perspective whether it comes to how we look at blank ends or how we look at how teams fare when they when they play against each other basically kind of a a a different way to look at the results that we see out of this game yeah and i think i think probably for a lot of our guests because a lot of our listeners aren't in the u.s and probably don't follow college basketball all that closely um, it's kind of hard to, uh, I guess, overstate how big a deal he is in the world of kind of sports analytics, right? Like he's, you know, got a significant Facebook, not Facebook page. He's got a significant Wikipedia page, kind of large Twitter following. He's kind of a go-to guy for, uh, college basketball analytics. He consults with teams. Um, so he's, he's actually very knowledgeable about sports analytics in general. And it's interesting to see him now pivot towards curling right and and start to ask um some of the big mysteries that we we have about kind of curling from an analytics perspective um so it's kind of interesting to see someone make that crossover from a different sport to, to curling yeah and we found out um you know it's because he he is a curler he he plays at the the utah olympic oval uh curling club in salt lake city in his hometown uh, so he's he's not coming to this out of curiosity. He's coming to it because he's he's into this sport, and you know, like he says, he he skips his own team in his league. So you know, he's uh he he's all in. It seems like absolutely. And so he's created a web page called doubletakeout.com. So we encourage you to kind of go look at that, where he's created his own rankings. Right. So he's gone. He's kind of developed a different system that he's going to talk about in the interview. And his system kind of produces some slightly different results in terms of where teams stand. Um, some teams do better than others. Perhaps my team does better. I don't know. Uh, we'll find out. We'll find out. Yeah. Yep. And uh, also ch- check out doubletakeout.com because he is writing blog posts there where he's looking at you know in- individual things that have to do with our sport, whether it comes from when to concede or how teams concede to um, kind of what the statistics look at, look like when you're blanking, when you choose to blank an end. Uh, so he's going to continue to post uh, kind of the results of, of the data that he's crunching there as well. 
Yeah. And so I think the, the other thing is that this kind of builds on the, the conversation with Jerry Gertz from Curling Zone a few episodes back where um, the kind of rankings that Jerry's doing are um, different, right? There's a, it's a points accumulation system where teams are playing in a series of competitions over the course of the season, trying to earn points to qualify for bigger events, be it slams, be it um, national championships or uh you know, potentially other events like that. So it's a way to kind of agree how the course of the season leads to access to different kinds of events. Um, Ken's doing a slightly different thing. He's trying to figure out kind of the old kind of, you know, barroom debate about which team's actually the best in the world, right? And so that's always a slightly different question that, you know, a team, you know, may not win a final, but they might be the better team. And so he's kind of looking at it more from like statistically, What's the stronger team based on their track record? All right, so let's get into it. And uh, here is Ken Pomeroy. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. This is a, a big moment for me, my first uh, my first curling interview. So uh, I hope it goes well. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it won't be a problem. Um, so we, we have a lot of listeners in Canada and some in Europe, and a lot of them may not follow U.S. college basketball. So you can, can you just kind of briefly explain, explain uh, your background and the genesis of, of KenPalm.com? Yeah, my, my background is uh, about 15 years ago, I, there was you know, an analytics movement, mostly in baseball, if you're familiar with the movie Moneyball. I mean, that uh, kind of crystallized what was going on in the early 2000s. And I was reading some of the stuff online and uh, really digging it, but I wasn't a huge baseball fan. Uh, my, my game was basketball and specifically college basketball. Uh, and so that's kind of what led me to start my site. Um, uh, it's just rate, you know, first of all, just rating the team in college basketball. There are, you know, over 300 teams in the U S so it's impossible to follow like every team. And so there was really a need for a rating system to kind of give everybody the chance to see where a, a random team was in the college basketball universe. And, uh, you know, the site just kind of grew from there, but you know, the, the foundation of it has always been, uh, kind of the ratings and I guess the evaluation of various aspects of, of every team in, in the sport. Uh, you're also a Hokie. So Jonathan is surrounded by Hokies, uh, <laughs> here today. Uh, what, what is it about Virginia tech that has people that produces analytics guys? Cause I know Massey who did the mass, who does the Massey ratings that used to be a part of the BCS. He was a Hokie too. What is it? Is it the, I guess it's just, it's the fact that it's an engineering school, right? I guess. Yeah. Kenneth Massey, uh, you know, predated me by, uh, three or four years, I think at tech and, uh, you know, obviously, uh, is a, a brilliant dude in, in the ratings area. He, he rates all sorts of different sports, not curling, but, uh, but a bunch of different sports. Yeah. It's kind of, uh, kind of a coincidence that we both came from there, but it's, uh, it's really cool that we kind of have that tradition. Yep. And, uh, so now you've started doubletakeout.com, which is where you've posted your curling ratings. So tell us, you know, what, what originally got you into this sport and how, how long have you been following curling? So I think I first really got into it in, uh, 2006. I was working a job that, uh, I was working the overnight hours and, uh, during the Olympics, I'd, I'd get home and, uh, you know, like the third end of some game would be on CNBC or something. And, and I just started kind of, you know, every day I got home, I'd just be watching the games and, uh, um, started to, started to get into it. Then it didn't really stick at that point. I didn't start 
playing. I wasn't in an area where I could play, um, but picked up the game five or six years ago now and, uh, and started getting into it then. And really I haven't, didn't start following it super closely, probably till, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, just more like a casual viewer up to that point. But then, you know, a, a year or two ago, things really, the bug started to hit and I was, you know, I think it coincided with me starting to like skip my team more. So I needed to know strategy and understand it. So I was watching games for that purpose. And, you know, if there was a, a random stream on, on YouTube from Korea, like I would pull up, <laughs> I pull up that game and start watching it just because I wanted to kind of learn more about how to play. This all sounds really familiar. Uh, so, um, I get so you do get to go out and play. Tell everybody where 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 do you play out of? Yeah, I live in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. So um, we play at the Utah Olympic Oval, uh, which is not where they held the Olympic curling event in two thousand two. But we do actually curl with the stones that were used then. So we uh, we do have that uh, distinction. Um, so yeah, that's uh, it's a you know it's a wouldn't say it's a super like mature club or, or anything like that, but uh, it's uh, cool to have the opportunity to go out and play. Well, you guys, you guys hosted Arena Nationals a couple of years ago, didn't you? We did, yes, we did. That was a, a great, uh, great event for us and uh, put us on the map. I think a little bit among our fellow uh, arena curlers. Yeah, I, w- I was not able to make that. I think I made one, I'm, the last one I played in. I think was the year before in Westchester. I did not get to make it out to Salt Lake. I took one look at how much those flights were going to cost from <laughs> Richmond, and was like, "Guys, I can't do this." <laughs> well, you uh, you missed out on a good time. Yeah, like uh, that was like late April, early May. That's like mm-hmm. a great time in Utah. So uh, yeah, some people came out and, and made a vacation of it. But yeah, it was really cool to host that. There were you know some. It was a wide variety of, of skill levels in that event, but some really yeah. good teams. And I, you know, I was just eating that up. I was uh, basically timing a lot of the games. So I was just kind of sitting next to the coaches or the, the alternates and kind of eating up what uh, what they were saying. Nice. Uh, so what was the inspiration to, to put together the rating system? And can you kind of explain it a little bit? I know Jonathan will go in and Jonathan has some more harder hitting questions about the math involved. But can you explain like kind of how this came together and how you started doing this? Right. Well, it, uh, it, it was a very similar feeling to when I started doing it in basketball where there was just a lot, you know, I'm watching games and there are a lot of things being said that I wasn't quite trusting, but also just watching games and not knowing which teams were, should have been favored or if one team beats another was, you know, it's a big upset or who should, who should be the favorite to win this event that I'm watching. Uh, all those things are kind of unknowns. Obviously you do have the, you know, the, the world curling tour rankings, the, you know, the point system, but that system isn't necessarily designed to answer the questions that, that I'm talking about. So I wanted to, to create a system that would be able to do that. And then hopefully like, you know, build something on top of that where I could start writing about curling in a way that, you know, nobody's really writing about it right now. Yeah. So when I, as soon as Ryan sent me the link, I was kind of like very happy because I've been kind of pounding on the table about ELO ratings for a while now. Uh, we, we did an episode with Jerry Gertz uh, about a month back and I asked Jerry about ELO ratings and he actually said, yeah, he thought that ELO was the way to go, but he just said that's not what they're trying to do for the curling zone rankings, right? So um, you don't do ELO ratings though, right? You're using a different system. So can you explain maybe what ELO ratings are and what um, the system you're using are and how they're different. Yeah. Yeah. I'll try to do that in a way that won't, uh, cause people to shut off the podcast. <laughs> I don't know. They listen to me and if they listen to me yeah. and Jonathan every other week, I'm sure they'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
So, uh, so when I first started, uh, you know, kind of dabbling in this uh, a couple months ago, yeah, that I thought Elo was the way to go, and I, it's, uh, Elo is a pretty, it's a pretty simple uh, concept where you know if your team has a certain rating, let's say it's fifteen hundred, and my team has a rating of fourteen hundred, and we play, you know, there's a certain number of our ratings points that are up for grabs. And if it's like 20, then, you know, if you win that game, you might get like six points added to your rating and I might get six points subtracted. Whereas if I win, because I'm the underdog, I might get 14 points added to my rating and you get 14 points subtracted. Um, so it's a, it is, it's also a points-based system, but it's, you're just exchanging points with your opponent. And the beauty of it is that like nothing in the outside world affects that. Like if we're playing on a particular day, we know what's at stake and, uh, and nothing else affects that. And it's a pretty good system. Like I tested it out and for the most part it was good there, but there were like a few too many outliers for my taste. So I uh, eventually tried this system called Bradley Terry, which is a is similar to Elo, but different in that uh, there's like a, first of all, there's a time window. You have to define a time window for the, the, the games to matter. Basically if we play each other, like it's not just our game that affects each of our ratings. Like that's most of it, but if you've just played like three or four teams and they all on the same day go out and beat other good teams, like your rating's going to get bumped up a little bit, um, even if you didn't play. So uh, if you're a, a math nerd, basically the Bradley-Terry ratings depend on like connections. Every, every team is connected to every other team. And that's how we figure out the ratings. And in ELO, you need a, because it's not connected, you need like a starting point for every team. You need to kind of arbitrarily define this. And you can, there are ways to do it that are better than others. Bradley Terry, you really don't need that once you have enough games. You know, once you have 20 or 30 games from every team, like it just figures out, hey, who's good relative to these other teams based on who they played and who they've beaten and who those teams have played and et cetera, et cetera. So Bradley Terry is a little more complicated to compute, but uh, I also found it to be uh, a lot. It just look like just based on the eye test, the teams look like they're in better spots than in ELO. Yeah, so I'd say so. So like one of the things, like in your second blog post, you you flagged Krista McCarvel. And I think Krista McCarvel ranks kind of the classic um, rankings problem, right? They show up at the Scotties every year, normally make the playoffs, are normally a medal threat, but they're they're not high at all on the W, the World Curling Tour rankings, right? Because they just don't go out and spiel, but they're a, they're a good team. They're a team that does well, and they've done well historically against other really good teams. So... Um, how, how is your system able to spot Krista McCarvel as being a good team and maybe move them up the rankings, whereas other ranking systems aren't able to do that? So the, the World Curling Tour rankings, they really uh, depend on you playing playing a lot, preferably. You know, Obviously, by the end of the year, you, you know, those eight events, your top eight events are being used for points. So if you're playing fewer than eight events, you, you have some zeros in there. And even if you're playing nine or 10 events, like you're, the events you're dropping are potentially better than a team that's playing, you know, 13 or 14 events. Uh, so in this Bradley Terry setup, it doesn't really matter how many games you play. Like it just evaluates on evaluates you on who you played. If you played six games against top 10 teams and went three and three against them, like you're going to be ranked probably fourth or fifth in the, in the world, just based on those games. Um, so so that's how it works. Like, yeah, the Kristen McCarvel case was encouraging because not only does she not play many events, but a lot of the events she does play are against inferior competition. And handling that is 
a pretty big challenge. Elo, in fact, doesn't really do a great job of that. You know, that's the one, the one issue here is that I'm, you know, I guess the, the great test is like rating juniors, like Mackenzie Zacharias, who, who won the Canadian juniors, uh, world juniors actually, um, you know, played a ton of games as a junior and won a lot of games. And Elo tends to really overrate teams that just win a lot of games. You always get points for winning games, no matter who you're playing. And, um, you know, she ended up being like, I don't know, in the teens or something in the world, if you use Elo, whereas in Bradley Terry, I think she's just outside the top 30 or something. So, um, so, so I was really pleased by that. I mean, it's those kind of tests really that, you know, you have to look at and figure out, does, does this make sense? And ultimately when, when comparing the two systems, like the answer was much more often Bradley Terry makes the, the rating makes more sense in Bradley Terry than it does in Elo. And so are there any other surprises or any other teams that have moved up or down the rankings in the top 20 that, that you think kind of show that what the insights that you can get from your system? Yeah. I mean, one thing, you know, I, I put on the site is obviously the ranking against the top 10 and the top 25 to try to, um, you know, get some context for where a team is ranked. So you can easily kind of judge it. Like it was more for me than anything, but I think other people can look at it and judge it as well. Like the one, the one thing that jumps out is, you know, on the women's side, uh, Tabitha Peterson is ranked second. And I, you know, at this point, I have to point out that right now I'm just ranking a team based on who is skipping. So when Tabitha Peterson took over for Nina Roth, that was like a new team in the system. And that's one thing I will be changing shortly. But uh, for now, it's like really illustrative of how the system works because, you know, I don't think anybody necessarily considers Tabitha Peterson's team the second best in the world, but you know, she played 33 games and, and won 27 of them and was six and two against the top 10. And uh, so she, her team played really well. Like if you, maybe it was a fluke, but it was a pretty long fluke. And uh, I, I find it interesting that when you look at record versus top 10 there, I believe there are only five teams that had a above 500 record against the top 10. And one of them was Casey Scheidegger, who was three and two and you know, played limited schedule. So, take her off the list and there's only four, uh, you know, I, I don't think people understand how hard it, or at least I didn't understand like how hard it is to go just six and two against the top 10. Like Chelsea Carey was six and 19. So hmm. Tabitha Peterson could have gone 0 and 17 <laughs> in her next 17 games against the top 10 and still had a, as good a record as Chelsea Carey. So, um, so even in that small sample, like there's some, there's some meaning there. This is actually basically my next blog post, but I'm, I'm giving it to you guys for, uh, for free here. But, uh, <laughs> but there is some, there's some meaning in that data. And uh, uh, I, I, you know, there's still some insight there. Even if you think that, that Tabitha Peterson's not that good, like there's, she played really, really well in the, in the time that she was skipping. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's, with the men also, I think it's telling that the top, um, top five teams are kind of the Canadian, what I'd call the power five, right? So it's Jacobs, Botcher, Gushu, Cooey, Epping, which I think most people think, kind of thinks it makes sense. And Nicodine actually kind of slips down a fair bit um, just because he's like five and 10 against the top 10, but does really well against um, kind of teams lower down the rankings and plays a lot. So is, do you think that's also kind of a similar effect there where a team that's kind of funded and able to play a lot on tour, they can rise up in other rankings, but that might, kind of hide a bit of weakness against the the top five or top 10 teams in the world? Yeah, no question. Uh, yeah, Dean is a funny one because invariably, you know, people do expect him to be ranked higher. But when you look at, you know, look at his performance from last year, I mean, you know, he, he was five and 10 against top 10. He was nine and 10 against 11 to 25. So like just based on that, you know, he's, 
you wouldn't you can't really justify him being higher than seventh. In fact, the, the reason he is even that high is that I do use a two-year window for um, the game. So games from two years ago do not have you know, as much weight as games from last year, but they still are are in there. So I think if you just use like just data from last season, he'd be you know on the fringe of the top ten. So that is, I think, another piece of insight. It's like, hey, you know, he has this reputation, but really, when you look at what he actually did last year, like. You know, he, he had a kind of a, a disappointing year, you know, relative to his reputation. And that's something that, again, maybe if you follow, like, I'll be the first to admit, I follow curling kind of closely, but I also still do basketball. And that's my first priority. So maybe I missed some of these storylines during the season, but that's certainly something that I, that wasn't to me a big storyline that came out of last season when I was, you know, watching games involving him. Yeah. I mean, I'd say so. I mean, he didn't have as good a season on the slams as, say two years ago and most of his big wins were the euros which mm -hmm. didn't really have it only had uh moet and pete de cruz kind of in the top 10 so a thinner field than say the briar uh and then the world you know the, the previous year before that the world curling championships right so it's it, it, it sort of says it kind of to me at least passes the eyeball test that that adine's kind of good but perhaps you know if he played the briar he might not be the favorite. He'd certainly kind of make the championship round, but he wouldn't be the favorite to win, I don't think. Yeah, that's a uh, that kind of leads me into thinking about you know strength of field as well, and how you know strength of field is calculated in the World Curling Tour rankings, and it's you get you know you get more points for not just strength of field, I guess, but also like the prestige of the event. Whereas you know in this system, strength of field is not something you need to calculate mm -hmm. going into an event. It just is there based on who's playing. You get credit for who you, who you beat, you know, who you play and who you beat. And uh, so ultimately the slams really, you know, end up being, for, especially on the men's side, uh, well, excuse me, I guess more so on the women's side, but on the men's side, uh, the slams end up being the most important, you know, events. They're like stronger field than anything else, even the Olympics, you know, you're, you're going to get more, you have potential to move up more by, by winning a slam than winning the Olympics. One of the things I kind of don't like about the way the the ratings are now is it seems like it's tougher for teams to break through in slams because, you know, with, with the with the strength of field multiplier, you know, it's like being in slams just begets being in more slams because it's it's tougher to move far enough down the rankings that someone else can pass you and get that invite. Is it a little bit easier with with the the bradley terry for that to happen or since you know you're not really counting a whole strength of field multiplier it's just who did you play and who did you beat um or is it or is it kind of the same system because you get to a slam obviously the teams you're going to play are going to be pretty strong right so the holy grail really for a system you know i guess my years of, of working on college basketball i think have, have really are really helpful in this respect like the holy grail for a system is not you want a system that can't be like gamed. So like you say, you know, if you're, if you happen to play in the slams, like Yannick Schwaller is a great example where he, you know, he uh, is probably not slam worthy, but he, for some reason, whatever, however the point system works, like he gets those opportunities and he's really not like, he's always been kind of outside of the, when I look back at the history of these ratings, which I need to make available on the site, but he's always kind of outside of the top 16. Um, but somehow ends up getting, you know, a bunch of games against really good opponents. Uh, uh, so you want, here's what you want. You want a system where if you go out and play like the 15th best team in the world, like you'll be rated 15th, like whether it's playing in the slams or whether it's playing in, uh, you know, lesser spiels, 
um, you want a system that can identify that so that you don't need that opportunity to, uh, to be rated where you are. Um, we, you know, that's a huge issue in college basketball where you can play in a mm -hmm. conference where your opponents are relatively poor, but if you can dominate them, uh, on a certain level, like obviously you're a really good team and you should be recognized as such. And it's taken a long time for the powers of being college basketball to sort of recognize that, that fact, and they're still struggling with it, but we're getting there. And I think that is, you know, that was kind of a, a thought in my mind in designing the system was that I don't, I don't want your rating to be dependent on who you play. That said, like, it's pretty obvious, like the best teams are in the slams and the best teams do play other, other best teams. And for the vast majority of the time, like that's going to hold up, but there's obviously going to be cases where players, especially, you know, maybe players that don't play in North America, uh, you know, in the far East or whatever, they don't have the opportunity to play great teams, but they themselves are probably a great team and we just don't see them enough to uh, really realize that. Yeah, so you have this other blog post up that's about um, hammer and win expectancy, and you were talking about the like whether or not a team should, um, you know, blank or just take one with hammer. I guess we've got an age old debate. So is this kind of one of the areas your your blog your kind of blog's going to move to is kind of also analyzing some strategic questions? And what did your research uh, show you in that particular case? Yeah, I think so. When you just get into curling analytics. I feel like the whole blank issue is like, it should be your first test, you know, as, as to how you think, because part, you know, part of getting into analytics, you want to sort of like find some, you know, innovation and strategy or something like that, or find some way that people are playing the game wrong. And uh, obviously the, the blank end is just part of, of curling culture and everybody does it. And you probably should not go in, to that investigation thinking that every curler has this wrong, you know, probably they have it right. And if your analysis is showing it's wrong, like you need to really take a second and third look at your work because if you're going <laughs> to come out and say that the team shouldn't be blanking ends. Like you, you better be very, very sure about that. Um, so for me, it was more, I guess, coming at it from understanding the value, like the value of the blank analytically and, and, and just working through that. Um, and, 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 you know, as I wrote in the, in the most recent piece, it's really a win probability thing. Like if you, if you look at the points that are scored, uh, by the team with hammer, I think it does average out. It's generally like your net points is going to be less than one, um, on a, on an aggregate basis, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be blanking. And in fact, the win probability completely explains that. Like if you, you know, blank an end, your win probability goes up basically, you know, not a lot, but it goes up a little bit. Um, later in the game, it goes up more, you know, as you get close to the end of the game, the blank is, is worth more, or the hammer's worth more. So the blank is worth more. Um, mm. so that was kind of what drove me, uh, to look at that. And, uh, and you know, that, you know, to, I guess to explain it, I think it's hard. Like why is the, if, if you're only going to average less than one point, why wouldn't you take the one point uh, instead of blanking? But I think the, first of all, just giving up hammer is worth a lot. So you don't want to give up hammer. If you get one point and give up hammer, that, that hurts you and your win probability goes down. So, uh, so if the choice is between blanking and taking one at the, at the end of the end, like you definitely want to blank, uh, obviously hoping for a, a multiple point in later. 
Because there's actually like, there's, it's like one of the genuine analytical debates out there is this. And so you, you probably don't know the name, but Bill Sherhart, who was kind of... Um, I do know the name, actually. Okay. Yeah. So he was like the, the early kind of developer of Canada's high-performance curling program in the 90s and early 2000s. And then Jim Waite, who's kind of like the superstar coach in Ontario curling circles. They, they ran an analysis... So this would have been like like, like late three guard zone, uh, three rock free guard zone, early four rock free guard zone. But they had Curling Canada run an analysis at like the Skydies and Briar one year, and they kind of came back and said, actually, the stats say you should never blank because um, <laughs> the next end you actually don't score more than one. <laughs> it's like statistically, you're more likely to either give up a steal or get forced. And so they've been saying that, but then when Ken Palmer ran his analysis with win expectancy, and I think Jerry, I've kind of asked him a few times about this, Jerry Gertz, and he he kind of seems to think that it's really, they were looking at it the wrong way, that really yeah. it's about like hammer positioning and win expectancy. And so they're kind of adamant that the blanking does make sense. Yeah. When you look at it from a win probability standpoint, there's, there's no doubt that, um, it makes sense, except uh, if you looked, if you did, if you read my, read my piece and saw that graph, there's a, a weird quirk in the second end where, uh, when the game is when the game is tied in the second end and you have hammer, like actually historically the last couple of years, five rock rule, uh, the team that scores one wins more often than the team that blanks in that situation, which is uh, a, a very interesting edge case of curling that I don't think has to do with the lack of value in blanking. I think it has to do with some some circumstances and in getting to that situation where if you getting, getting in the weeds a little bit, but if you're tied in the second end, like obviously you blank the first end. So if you have to blank the first end in the second end, maybe that says something about your inability to score multiple points or something that is bad for your team. But, uh, but yeah, in general, um, you're right. You got to look at it by win probability. And so those are the kind of things I guess I want to look at, like, you know, the sixth end issue where people, you know, you're watching games and people talk about the sixth end being so valuable and, there's a line of thinking that you should score one point in the sixth end and not blank it. Um, but um, when probably analysis doesn't really back that up, I still need to kind of flesh that out, but that's a, a point I think worth making at, at some point when we get back into curling and, and that starts to get mentioned again, is that that's really actually like not a good way. The, the hammer is still too valuable. Like you don't to give up hammer at that point and risk the other team blanking the seventh and then having hammer at eighth is like not worth it at all to, to score that one point in six. Yeah, I know, Ryan, you said you had a theory about the second end. Yeah, and I got you kind of t touched on it. Basically, my thinking is, yeah, if you have to blank that second end after you blanked the first, you know, you're trying to go blank deuce. No one tries to go blank blank unless it's like Gunner. When, uh, if, unless it's uh, Jason Gunlickson, uh, pre five rock rule, um, <laughs> but no one's trying to go blank blank. So if you're forced to blank that second end, I think it's, it's more of an indication that your team's a little off or the other team is control and doing a better job of controlling the house. And you're, you're in trouble regardless of whether or not you're blanking that second end. Yeah. So that's, yeah, our line of thinking is pretty similar. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think pro teams also try to get the, try to score with hammer even ends early. Like uh, that's definitely like a strategy. So yeah. um, I'm not sure. I'm not, I haven't. That's home and Zim. Yeah. Holman's MO is try to score like blank first end, score second end. Um, and I, so it could be, it's one of those cases where maybe the data doesn't quite catch the strategy that they might even be willing to, to take a force that end. 
Yeah, and you know the other the other thing is too. I you know I, as I mentioned the piece, like I these are games from basically every game I got you know off of Curling Zone and yeah the next mm-hmm. step and part of the beauty of the ratings is that you know we can just look at the elite players and see if this holds for those games and then you would I don't know if it would or not, but that's that's the next step really to sort of making those judgments about whether elite teams should be doing this or not. Yeah. I mean, the other one, if you, I mean, I'm sure you haven't done the analysis yet, but the other one that I find fascinating is like the men's teams, especially since the five rock came along, they do everything to get hammer intent. And like, I've even seen teams in, in big games, like Cooey's notorious for this giving up a two. Right. And they'd rather come home down one. I think Cooey in a slam even kind of preferred to come down home two yep. and have the hammer. Then, which like to me is like almost insanity. Like the, the, the the Kevin Palmer kind of analytics say that's a losing position, but he won the game doing that. So he obviously, again, it's the case where he obviously knows something. Yeah. I think Kevin even acknowledged like, yeah, I can kind of understand why he would think that because, you know, for the, the best of the best in the world, like the hammer is so valuable that even, you know, having hammer tied is a, a better position than being up to and not having hammer. It's yeah. It, it's hard to believe that that would be the case, but it's definitely on the list of things I'd like to, to check into. Yeah. So I don't know if you're, if you you got my message, so this may, <laughs> this may fall <laughs> by the wayside, but I, so I was curious, and this is like literally just for laughs since I, I played on a team last year that finished a solid, I think hundred, it finished in the one seventies. I'm not sure where we finally were when the dust settled, uh, team retchless. So I'm wondering if, how far down your rankings go, are you able to like go deep, <laughs> deep into the one seventies and, uh, like how, how big of a sample size do you need for it to work? Cause we basically played four events, uh, we, you know, probably under 20 games. We did play some top Well, we played like Ross white, who's probably the highest ranked on your system. And mm-hmm. we, we played kind of several top 100 teams, but also played a lot of teams that weren't anywhere near the top hundred. So we had a very, uh, you know, lopsided year did about as well as you'd expect against the top top 20 teams, top 40 teams, if you will. And then, you know, did had a pretty good record against the non-top 100 teams. Let's put it that way. So my hunch is <laughs> that we would do worse under your rankings than we did under the point accumulation system. But I'm wondering, like, how well does your system work for lower ranked teams? And are you able to go yeah. that far down the rankings? Jonathan, you're always chasing points. Always, I'm a word. Yeah, it's just notorious it's like points chasers. Notorious points chasers. <laughs> so uh, your hunch is uh, is wrong in this case, and uh, hopefully this doesn't invalidate my system. But uh, so I first of all, I have you as going 13 and seven in those events. That sounds so about that, right. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah. Uh, just the the one game I guess against Ross White. Uh, oh, we, that was a four end. Uh, clinic by Ross. <laughs> yeah. So, that's a great, you know, <laughs> great point. I like I said, it went as much as you would expect. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't account for how the game was played. It's just wins and losses in this system. But anyway, I have you ranked 104th, which, uh, Oh, wow. Sweet. I like your system. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you felt like the 104th best team, but, uh, so in no. fact, uh, you know, I, on the main page, I think the minimum number of games is 20. Uh, which yeah. is exactly what you played. So you, you know, if you'd snuck into the top 100, you would have been, you would have been uh, on the page. And in fact, that's something I need to add really to the page is that you know you can search for a team that isn't in the top 100 because I've had interest from people who aren't in the top 100, and it's like, okay, I, you know, the, I guess the reason I w- limited it to 100 is I didn't want, I didn't want the last place team to be like mocked ridiculously, you know. So I was like, 
I'm looking to list the top 100, but uh, it seems like there's interest in everybody uh, who has played in, a, in an event wanting to see where they're rated. So, uh, so I need to add that. But anyway, congratulations. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Oh, the system's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, Team McGee went a solid 2-0 and in the Curling Club of Virginia League before COVID ended our season. Uh, so. <laughs> I think I'm number uh, like 2,000th on uh, on the Pomeroy rank- ranking system. Uh, for, so for those who haven't been to Ken Palm, and it's pretty much the first place I go whenever I've had to cover college basketball or every year when I go to fill out my bracket, can you... What are the similarities and the difference between what you're looking at for college basketball and what you've done on the curling side? So, uh, yeah, the college basketball side is definitely more detailed and more more fleshed out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that comes from you know doing it for 15 years. But there's also just more data available from college basketball games that allow that to happen. Um, but the the concept is is pretty similar. You, you know, it's it's trying to rate teams that most of whom don't play each other. Uh, so, so that's the, that's the goal on the college side, you know, we, the, the basis for the, the game is, or the ratings is the offensive and defensive efficiency. So it, mm-hmm. it actually, and that's really why I got some notoriety, I guess, early on in rating college basketball. There are a lot of people doing it, but I was rating specifically a team's offense and defense based on uh, their points scored per possession and points allowed per possession. Um, and so that gave people kind of another layer of insight that they weren't getting before. And, Obviously, the, on the curling side, I just have a a base rating right now, which uh, was pretty cool when I released it. But then, you know, it only goes so far, especially when there's no games being played. You know, you maybe want a little more detail on how these teams play, and so uh, so that's maybe uh, you know the next step in terms of ratings is adding some features like that. Yeah, that was my next question: was is is there a benefit to looking at curling similar to what you do with college basketball, where you're looking at how teams do do with and without hammer? Um, kind of similarly to how you do with offense and defense. That's how, that's kind of how I explain curling to people who don't understand or who know my basketball work and, and don't know about curling is like, yeah, you know, you have having hammer is kind of like having possession. Although obviously you can give up points with hammer. You can't give up points when you have possession in, in basketball, but it's a similar thing, you know, and if you blank an end, that's like getting an offensive rebound and, and continuing the possession and giving yourself another opportunity to score. Um, so I think, you know, I started to, to dabble in, in looking at that information. I think how you present that information is uh, a challenge. Um, you know, you want to do it right. But certainly uh, looking at that information, I think, can can lead us to some insight. You know, you were talking about the, uh, you mentioned Rachel Homan before. And, I, you know, from my, I mentioned in my last piece about kind of the first end strategy that, um, you know, over half of her ends are blanks and she doesn't score many points in the first end. And Jennifer Jones is the opposite and she's really aggressive in the first end. And uh, I think just, I think people know that intuitively they watch a lot of curling, but it's those like lesser curlers that you don't know that data for. And I think it would be interesting to have that kind of stuff at your fingertips as you're, as you're watching a game. So you kind of knew what to anticipate almost before, you know, any of the, uh, the broadcasters are, uh, are telling you this. Yeah, do you think we'll get to the point where we'll have those kind of team specific page pages on on doubletakeout.com or even that like the fan match page that you have uh for for the college basketball teams? I know I I would definitely pay something similar to what the what the annual subscription rate is for Ken Palm to to see something like that on the curling side. <laughs> now now we're talking. I I <laughs> yeah. I certainly didn't get started in this to uh, thinking about uh, making a profit, very similar to how I got started in basketball. I was like, oh, this is like just kind of cool information. And you know, who's going to want to look at this besides me? But um, 
Yeah, I think, I mean, that would be great. The one, you know, the one issue is that obviously I uh, owe all of this to, to Jerry Gertz, who's collected all the data. And so mm-hmm. I uh, probably need to work through him to, to get his blessing to, uh, to go farther down that road. But I mean, I think, I think it's been, a, you know, such a success in college basketball that it would kind of achieve that mission that I know Jerry is all about, which is, you know, just making the game more popular and giving more attention to the game, you know, just have this data kind of really in an organized place where you can, you can know ahead of time, you know, what to expect from a game in terms of how teams are going to play. Like that would be uh, really useful for fans out there. What has been the feedback that you've gotten from non-curling people? Cause I mean, I'm sure that a bunch of people who look at your college basketball site on Ken Palm suddenly saw that little curling stone and got intrigued. Like, what have you heard from the people that are used to coming to you for college basketball now that they've seen what you've been doing for curling? The feedback has generally been uh, a mix of curiosity and and bewilderment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, let's let's face it. Like most college basketball fans are not familiar with curling. They're vaguely aware of the sport. So I'm not sure I really converted people into being interested in it. But uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of kind of my close friends in the business or whatever have noticed that curling stone and they're like, you know, what's going on here? Like, this is pretty wild, you know, and uh, that was probably the, the extent of, of their interest. But uh, I'm hoping like, you know, from an analytics standpoint, I think even if you don't care about curling, I'm trying to make the, the writing portion at least somewhat interesting to a more general audience. And there's certainly benefit in on the analytics side if you're just a basketball analytics person, there's benefit to like looking at other sports, you know, and, and learning about them and, and maybe taking something back to your own sport in terms of innovation. So, so hopefully for, uh, for a few people it'll rub off, but I'm under no illusion that, uh, that most people are just, you know, anxiously awaiting uh, the latest, you know, update to the site or anything like that. I think most of my basketball friends are probably, uh, probably just think I'm a little weird. Yeah, that sounds, <laughs> that feedback sounds pretty similar to what my friends give me, uh, every four years when the Olympics are on and they're, <laughs> There's always, there's a big difference between, oh yeah, this is kind of cool to actually getting them out on the ice. <laughs> exactly. No, no doubt about it. Yeah. I had the same vibe. Do you think, um, your analytics would also be useful for teams? Have you had like any thought of, uh, kind of advising teams or using your analytics system to kind of show, cause you mentioned kind of like you could, you could see that Jen Jones is aggressive first end, home is defensive first end. I mean, that's like you said, kind of obvious to, to people who kind of follow curling closely, but presumably your your analytics could kind of identify team strategies, potentially strengths and weaknesses. Have you had any thought of consulting with teams then? I think down the road, uh, you know, right now I'm I'm well aware of like my own limitations uh, in terms of my knowledge of the sport. And uh, it's come a long way in the last couple of years, but it's not to the point where I feel like Oh yeah, I'm going to tell, you know, teams like how to play or, or if they should change a strategy or things like that. But I do think down the road, like I, I would love to get into it from that standpoint. I mean, I think that's the goal here early on is to get to these next few months and kind of like work through a lot of the, the issues and investigate things in the data and, and, uh, hopefully get to a point where I have some credibility in the sport. And then, um, at that point we'll see where it goes. Again, I know, I know Jerry does it, you know, has kind of his own little thing where he's consulting with teams. So. Uh, I want to be a little careful not to to step on his toes, but um, but there's certainly like yeah a goal down the line. It'd be it'd be great to get involved in the sport in that way. Yeah, I think I'm, this is probably the next big thing is my hunch. Um, 
like you know if the fitness trend was kind of what dominated the last decade in curling probably like curling in a certain sense is not that advanced when it comes to stats right it's really been a few people over the last couple of, like we've mentioned them all on the podcast who've kind of done it on their websites but it's you know you compare to a lot of sports where the the statistical analysis is a lot more in depth i think we're still quite a little bit behind the curve here when it comes to curling yeah it seems like we're we're maybe turning a corner but but i would agree like the general it does like you know I, I keep bringing this up but it really feels like where for me where basketball was 15 years ago where there was there were a lot of blind spots in terms of how to think about the game from an analytic standpoint you do see teams that i mean it's not completely unusual to see teams talk about like win probability on on the ice during games you know high level teams so you know the more you hear those conversations i think you, the more you understand that this kind of thinking is seeping into the game, but uh, yeah, it would be nice to just open up the floodgates and, uh, and make it common knowledge for everyone. Do you think so? Like in basketball, at least the NBA, it's like the, the corner threes kind of see like, you know, like three, three, the three point plays kind of become the symbol of like analytics, right? The golden state warriors, just, you know, space and pace, all that's kind of seen as an analytic, uh, a result of analytics kind of saying that that's a way better shot than, like a, a long two, right? And that's it's one of those things that's like so common sense now, but was kind of seen as ridiculous, say 15, 20 years ago in basketball. What do you think there's something similar in curling? Like what's the big thing we're missing? What's the blind side? <laughs> what's the obvious shot? What's the, do you have any sense at all so far from your analysis? I, that's something I hope to find out. I, so for, for one, like we need, uh, we need better data, you know, and that's actually something I've, I've dabbled in on the side as well. It's kind of ha- maybe a better way to like chart games, you know, so we have this information that we can look at, you know, is it appropriate to peel the center guard on this shot or, or not? Or is it, you know, appropriate to, to draw here or hit or, you know, some sort of basic questions to start out with. But you need basically like positional data of the rocks on on every end or some sort of general description of what's going on. So when we get to the point where we have that data, then, then we can answer some, some pretty cool questions, but it, it's certainly something like because I've started the site and because of, you know, the kind of the journey I told you about the past few years, like it's, it is something I think about when I'm watching games, like, Hey, not only are these good decisions, but like, how would we evaluate these decisions? And uh, I know there's been some academic work on this and, and I know Jason Gunlickson has been kind of involved in some of that stuff, but, uh, I think we have a, a long way to go, but I, it's certainly a problem that is is doable once we can kind of get enough data to look at it. It's part of the professionalization of curling is getting all this new data and having uh, having people think about the game in cool new ways. So we we really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. I do have one more question for you, and I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, if we have a season, how are the Hokies going to do uh, in college basketball this year? Uh, probably. Probably not great. Uh, their their best player basically uh, transferred out, so a very a very young team from last year coming back. But uh, it's, it, it'll probably be another uh, pretty mediocre season for Virginia. <laughs> I have a feeling that they are going to go zero and zero this year. I'm hopeful. I'm still hopeful they'll play some games, but uh, it's certainly possible. Yeah. All right. Uh, we really appreciate it, Jonathan. Do you have anything else before uh, before we get out of here? Uh, no, that's been it was a great conversation. I learned a lot. All right. Thanks again, Ken. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. 
You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app, and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon.